Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Best Boss Ever podcast series. I'm your host, Carl Thomas. So the question is, who was the best boss you ever had? Why? And what did he or she do that resonated so strongly with you? More importantly, how are you applying what you learned? From veteran founders and CEOs to emerging next generation leaders, these men and women talk about their experiences in candid, fun, and insightful conversations. So stay tuned, because the hits just keep on coming. As chief executive of McLaren Racing, Zach Brown has overall responsibility for the entire business, including strategic direction, operational performance, marketing, and commercial development. In his role, Zach leads McLaren's direction and involvement in professional motorsport, spearheaded by the McLaren Formula One team. Operating at the pinnacle of global motorsport, McLaren uses the white heat of competition to drive innovation and develop synergies across the entire McLaren group. Born and raised in California, Zach raced cars professionally around the world for 10 years before honing his skills in motorsports business and commercial worlds. In 1995, he founded his agency, JMI, which grew to become the largest and most successful motorsport marketing agency in the world. Then JMI was acquired by CSM, a division of Chime Communications in 2013, and Zach became the company's chief executive officer. He then relinquished that post to embark on his journey at McLaren. That was in the winter of 2016. Hey, Zach, clearly you're a car guy. Love that. It's great to have you with us today. Welcome to the Best Boss Ever podcast series. Thank you for uh, having me on. I'm not exactly sure how I qualified, but I guess someone out there has called me a best boss. Yeah, there you go. Well, you've got a C and have had a C in front of your title for quite some time, so you qualify. So we'll start with... Who was the best boss you ever had, recognizing that for the most part of your career, you were you were sort of leading the charge on your own behalf? Yeah, well, you always have a boss because you have clients and customers. And at the end of the day, they're your boss and very important ones. But I think there's probably uh, two that stand out. My first real one, if you'd like, is uh, Bruce Hernandez. He was Spire Capital who acquired my agency in 2008, a private equity group. And he was chairman. So really the first time I reported to someone from a business standpoint, and I learned a ton from him and he made me a much better CEO than when I started. And then I'd have to say my current chairman, which I'm very fortunate. I can say uh, my current chairman is, has been a, a great mentor of mine, uh, Paul Walsh. He's the executive chairman of, of McLaren Group. He's who I report into. And you know, he was a, speaking of clients, a, a client of mine for 15 years well, when he was the chief executive of Diageo. And so Bruce kind of taught me how to run a, I guess you call it a smaller business, you know, a very entrepreneurial business. And Paul, I'm very much learning from how to run a, a bigger business. And uh, between the two of them, I've, I've learned a ton. Well, two great examples. So Spire Capital, I guess I missed that day. Spire Capital acquired JMI in 2008? They were the lead investor alongside Credit Suisse. And then WPP, uh, Martin Sorrell's group, came in in 
2012. And then we sold the whole thing to Chime Communications in 2013. But yeah, Spire Capital and Credit Suisse were the uh, first ever investors in my company. Oh, that's great. So you're no stranger to the world of private equity and venture capital. Obviously, Providence, when you were at CSM, was the significant backing there. And how now, before we get into the real Zach Brown love, how is McLaren structured now from a capital stack perspective? So you've got McLaren Group, which is owned by five, five and a half individuals. Uh, there's someone in there with a, a small piece. The majority owner is, is Mum Telecat uh, out, of, out of Bahrain, their investment group. Then Monserroje, which is a tag group. I was the second largest shareholder and been around since the early 80s. So kind of a, a founding father of McLaren as it is uh, today, Monserroje. He's He's awesome and a, and a legend in motorsport. And then uh, a Canadian uh, called Michael Latifi, a Singaporean uh, called Peter Lim, and a Mexican named uh, Roberto Gary. That makes up McLaren Group. And McLaren Group owns all of McLaren Automotive, all of McLaren Applied, which is our technology business, and owned all of McLaren Racing up until December when we announced MSP Sports, Najafi and Company, and UBS O'Connor came in and acquired 33% of uh, racing. So we now sit outside of the group, but it's 67% McLaren Group and 33% the three other entities I just mentioned. Oh, that's super interesting. Quite a study in capital structuring, restructuring, and updating all along the way. Uh, and we'll get to that a little more here in a few minutes. But let's start, what led you to auto racing in the first place, Zach? My dad used to take my brother and I to races just as a casual and There was no connection to the sport, just kind of the races in town twice a year. My first ever race was the uh, 1981 Long Beach Grand Prix, which uh, Alan Jones won in the Williams. I remember like it was yesterday, I was 10 years old. I still have the race program. I'm a bit of a collector of, of things. So I still have that, which is pretty cool. And then we'd go to uh, Riverside for the sports car race, the NASCAR race. And then I'd go to Pomona for the drag races. And so I just loved cars as, as a kid. And then in high school, I went to school with a guy named Nick Ahrens, whose father was in the off-road business. And we went to the Long Beach Grand Prix in 87. And he was kind of in the business. So I had better access. And at that point decided I wanted to try my hand. I got an opportunity to meet Mario Andretti, which was quite intimidating. Hmm. And um, he won the race uh, from pole. And I asked him, yeah, how do you get started in racing? And he said, karting. And there happened to be an ad in the uh, race program to go to Jim Hall karting school. And I had been on a Wheel of Fortune team week when I was 13 and won a bunch of his and her watches. So I decided to go sell those at the local pawn shop in Van Nuys, took that money, went and bought a go-kart, and that's how I got started. Oh, that's that's great. At what age was that? Uh, that would have been 87, so I would have been 16. Wow. So for the next 10 years, you obviously go from karting to cars and sort of what was the, you know, in the vernacular, say, the fastest car you ever raced and in what format? Fastest would have been 24 hours of Daytona sports cars where you're getting up to about 200 and 
five, 210 miles an hour. Some of the historic cars I have now get up to that speed. So I've been north of 200, but raced professionally from 91 to 2000. So I did karting for four years and I did the kind of the junior formulas before Formula One and before IndyCar. So things like Opel Lotus, Formula Three, Toyota Atlantic, Indy Light. So if you follow racing, you'll know those series. If you don't, you'll have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> and then some of the more uh, famous races, the 12 hours of Sebring, the 24 hours of Daytona. I did sports cars the last two, three years of my career. Right. Well, anybody who's seen the film Ford v. Ferrari would be familiar with those names. But it costs a lot to put a car on the grid. I don't care at what level, whether it's a cart or it's an F1 car. How did you finance that? So I did my own sponsorship deals, which is ultimately what led to the business. How it initially got started is my mom's a travel agent. She introduced me to TWA Airlines, who had been sponsoring the Long Beach Grand Prix. And I got free airline tickets. And with the airline tickets, they allowed me to resell them. So I started just pounding the pavement, writing to companies and would bundle in, hey, sponsor me for 50 grand. And not only will you get 50 grand worth of exposure, I'll give you 50 grand worth of airline tickets. And that's how, how it ultimately got started. And then just, I moved to Europe in 91 and then just became laser focused on in order for me to race, I need sponsorship. So I'm going to figure out how you do it. I wasn't trained in marketing or sponsorship, didn't go to college. It was just, what do I have to do? So I became very focused on the the client because it was, I'll do whatever makes you happy to write me a check so I can go racing because that's what makes me happy. So I kind of became focused on what the sponsor's needs were because that was what led to my needs. And in 94, I got a deal to come race back in the States for 95. And TWA said to me, look, sponsorship's going great. Hey, you're moving. Can't you place the sponsorship? It's since matured with someone else in the sport. You must know everyone. And I went, yeah, I could do that. And then that's when I had the light bulb moment of maybe I should be chasing sponsorship, not only for myself, but for other people in the sport. And I had a lot of credibility, albeit young, that I knew how the sport worked. And so these corporations that wanted to get involved in the sport needed some guidance. And that was what I could provide them. And that was the foundation of how I got the business started. So you launched JMI in 95. You continue to race. So you've got a foot in both camps. But clearly, the commercial side of aligning sponsors with talent, teams, cars, tracks, and series, if you will, across the spectrum of motorsport racing? I mean, let's, you know, from drag racing to NASCAR to Formula One? Yeah, I mean, it kind of came in phases. IndyCar was my uh, comfort zone. That's what I grew up around. A couple of the famous IndyCar drivers I became friends with. So that was where I, I started and then got a little bit involved in drag racing Then I did my first NASCAR deal, I think it was 98 or 99, and I was shocked how easy it was. NASCAR was so booming then, and the first house was at Columbia House Records, uh, first deal, I should say, and it was one meeting and more money than I'd raised in IndyCar, so then I got into NASCAR. That's when business started to boom, and then I did my first Formula One deal. I almost went exclusively NASCAR from, not by decision, but but where 
corporations wanted to be. And it was like, well, why work so hard over here when all you do is say the word NASCAR and someone writes you a check? So we rapidly became kind of known as bringing in the most deals to the sport, did our first Formula One deal with McLaren, uh, funny enough, first two F1 deals with McLaren in 05. And then business was booming. We'd become the largest motorsport agency. That's you know ultimately what led to the um, investment in uh, 2008. Right. And was that investment sort of predicated on growth capital? I mean, you were going to utilize that capital to expand the agency? No, I put it all, every single penny in my pocket. Boy, I, th- those deals are hard to come by. Yeah. Well, I didn't have any intention of ever selling. And I kept getting all these phone calls and we were doing great. I was making very good money. Didn't have any debt, didn't have any loans, didn't have any credit. So just, I didn't need it. And Allen and company out of New York, a buddy took me there. And I said, look, I've got, I get all these phone calls all the time. I'm not really interested. So I'm not going to pay a retainer, but if you want to take some of these phone calls. And I remember uh, them saying, yeah, yeah, that's what all you guys say. Wait till we get you some real money put in front of you. And I went, well, you know, here's some phone numbers and gave them some and three people ended up chasing pretty hard. One was WPP who ultimately came in the next time around. They they didn't move fast enough. The first time, Brian France, uh, who was uh, Mm. chairman and CEO of uh, NASCAR at the time. And then uh, Credit Suisse actually called me, not Spire Capital, because they had a, a fund for fast-growing companies in Indianapolis, but the investment size was larger than they could do in this particular fund. So they brought in Spire Capital. And I remember going to New York and it was kind of turnover the, the paper and Allen and company got it right because when I saw what they put on the table, it went from being, okay, I'm making good money to a life-changing amount and was kind of, where's the pen? <laughs> Got it. They bought 70% of the company. And what I really liked about them was it was very clear they wanted to help run the business, make the business better, make me better, but it was a healthy business. It didn't require capital. So uh, I was able to, to take the investment, put it in my pocket, give them the equity and keep growing the business. And we doubled it in our time together. So it was a successful investment for, for everybody. Wow, that's a great story. So, so that sort of liquidity event, mini, if you will, occurs. So you've got the pedal to the metal and you're growing now. Like you said, you double the size of the company. And WPP and Martin Searle came in as an interim step before the sale to CSM? Yeah, so they were there in the first first to the table, but they didn't move fast enough. Which is unlike Sorrel, I guess. <laughs> uh, unlike Sorrel, but he had, he had delegated it. And right. uh, what was interesting is I stayed in touch. And in 2012, you know, he was on the Formula One board. And I remember him, he, he kind of changed the guys and went, uh, and he kind of gave the guy the assignment, I want to invest in JMI. Don't screw it up this time. And then that time he moved and he bought 20% which was 10 of Spire Capital Credit Suisse's 70 and 10 of my 30. And the whole reason we brought him in was for strategic. Right. You know, right. we didn't need his money. It was, you know, world's largest advertising agency, sits on the Formula One board. A lot of my clients were his clients. So he came in in 2012. And then we sold 100% in, I think it was August or November of 2013 to Chime. 
who was a publicly traded company at the time. And then they got acquired by Providence Equity right. in, I think it was 15, if I'm not mistaken, and taken off the exchange. So, you know, from about 2008 till 2016, when I left, about every two years, I had some sort of transaction going on. No, that's super interesting. Well, good for you, Zach. That's a great story. So let's leave the agency world. And as you're getting ready to depart as the CEO of CSM, if I if I have these facts wrong, you'll correct me. But if memory serves, you were looking to get back into the vertical side of motorsport and auto racing. Yeah. And you really had two opportunities at the time. One was with Formula One itself and the new owners, Liberty Media. And the other, and I'm not sure if they were coincident with each other or simultaneous, but the other was with McLaren. So walk us through that that moment in time and what swung the deal for you to go to McLaren. I thought I was going to go to Formula One. I had an offer to go to Formula One. It was quite a long uh, closing process. Just the first close from Liberty acquiring, but the way they did it, they did it in two tranches. So when they did their first closing, they didn't yet have a total control. And so while that I kind of thought was my dream job, Ron Dennis, who's one of the owners and, and was chairman CEO, who I was quite close with, was trying to get me to join. And McLaren's always been my favorite team, but I like kind of being my own boss. And the opportunity with McLaren uh, to work with Ron would have been awesome, but I kind of wanted to run the team and the opportunity wasn't there. So a combination of I'd started conversations with uh, Formula One and the McLaren was running in parallel, but never quite had me where that's where I wanted to to head. Mm. And then um, there was a fallout with the shareholders. The Liberty closing was was kind of taking forever. And I got a phone call from Monster Roger and, and Sheikh Mohammed, who were the other two major shareholders in McLaren, and kind of said, look, things aren't going to work out with Ron. They decided to get a divorce. So they then put kind of the full court press on me and then the opportunity to run the team and also Mansur and Mohammed are, are two very uh, charming individuals that the racer and me came out, the Liberty was going, the closure was going a bit slow, and it kind of turned on a dime overnight. And um, lots of good sleepless nights, luxury problem to have. Do I go to Formula One or McLaren? <laughs> but uh, uh, M- McLaren was in second place. And ever since I've joined, I have not looked back one minute, even through the worst of times. And I've joined McLaren kind of in the worst year in the history of McLaren. But to me, that's been the exciting, fun part of the challenge. And it's a lot more fun now that we've uh, pulled out of the nosedive we were in. Right. Well, and you you made a lot of changes when you got there. And we can talk about the fundamental changes across the board, whether it's drivers or engines or chassis or, or whatever including staffing of the McLaren racing division at the time. So you do what every good leader does. You find the holes, you quickly plug those holes. It doesn't happen overnight, but you, your first full season as CEO was then the 2017 season. 
Yeah, correct. Got it. So an aside here, I'm running Global Biz Dev in the chief revenue group for a nascent technology platform called Hookit. And you being sort of the early adopter that you are and going at breakneck speed, we're actually in discussions with McLaren because you've got a whole bunch of sponsors and it's pretty, I'll say pretty easy, pretty straightforward to sort of tether whatever television exposure might be beneficial to a group of sponsors or an individual sponsor, a lot harder to do in social and digital media. And that's where Hook It came in. And to your credit, which is where you and I got to know each other, McLaren was an early adopter of the Hook It platform. And literally that first season, we were working very closely with you and your digital team to help you understand what values were being driven on behalf of your sponsors and how to actually better deploy the whole social and digital media platforms around the McLaren racing team. Yeah, it's been massively important. I mean, we're one of the best. I'd like to think the best, but uh, in the whole social space and especially with what's going on with COVID, social's more important than ever. And so to have real measurement tools and understand how you're doing and the value you're driving and then learning from that to then figure out how to drive more value has been hugely important. So, um, yeah, I've made a lot of lot of changes kind of one at a time. If, if you kind of look at them in their totality, it almost kind of seems like I've turned the place on its on its head. That kind of wasn't the intention. Didn't do it all overnight, but just, you know, you got to be best in class everywhere and you kind of just knock it down one at a time. And I'm sitting here today in 2021, kind of finally with everything where I want it to be. You know, we're still not perfect and have a long way to go to get back to competing for the world championship, but we're certainly uh, on our way. That's that's really cool because it's been a long time uh, since the last McLaren world championship. And, and let's be real, McLaren, Ferrari, maybe go so far as Mercedes-Benz and or Williams, that is the royalty of F1 and has been for decades and decades and decades. And it's got to be really fun to sit where you sit with one of the iconic brands and and platforms for, you know, the namesake, Bruce McLaren. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, To me, it's the best job in the the world. The second best job, first best job would have been having a race suit on in a McLaren, but this is, uh, it wasn't good enough for that. So, I mean, it's always been my favorite team. My favorite drivers have raced here, Ayrton Senna, Nicky Lauda, Fernando Alonso, Mika Hakkinen. It's just such an awesome brand and racing team. And we're an IndyCar now. So there is no better job in the world for me than working at McLaren. Well, that's obvious through your passion and your approach and your sort of laser, let's call it white heat focus, right? Um, so let's deal with the past year. We're we're recording this in February. It's going to air in March before the start of the 2021 season. You go to Melbourne a little less than a year ago and determine at the start line, literally, that this COVID thing is is not a shadow dancer. It's real, and you pull the McLaren team from. The, the season opener. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, you know, as I've said before, as a racer, that was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do. 
because as a racer, you're kind of mentally prepared to see fatality and you get back in the race car next session. So it's, it's, it's a mindset of nothing scares you. You get back on the horse, but as a CEO, when you have this disease going around that can kill, does kill people, not only your own team, but a responsibility to the fans and other teams and workers, you know, you have to take the right CEO decision. So from that standpoint, Andreas Seidel, who's my team principal in F1, we discussed, we had a plan coming into the weekend if, if something were to happen. So it wasn't one of these where it hit. We then, we'd rehearse the fire drill. So right. we were at dinner with one of the shareholders. We got the phone call. We left dinner. We, we went straight into motion. And I was very proud of the team because everyone went into, you know, we executed the fire drill really well. Everyone knew what to do at the track, back at the hotel, round people up. I mean, it was just really, really well executed. And uh, it was a very, very proud moment, actually, but totally against racer instinct. <laughs> right. But you do the right thing for the right reason. So the season gets truncated last year. To your credit and to the broader credit of not only all the other race teams, but F1 itself, you did get back on the grid. You got back on the grid in a safe way, and racing happened. And even though there weren't tons of spectators and and you did it, you know, in the same city multiple times, because that's what made sense. When I say you, I mean the collective didn't have to deploy the massive amounts of capital it takes to put on a Formula One race. So you you get a venue ready and you race two or three times there, right? Yeah. So you truncate 2020. It finishes in pretty darn good fashion, at least from this guy's perspective. And now you're heading into 2021. Is there a full season planned? I know you're starting here next month in March. Where's the first event? It is in the Middle East. In, in Bahrain. Yeah, I think, you know, there's currently 23 races on the calendar. And I, I, I think we have a good shot of getting all 23 in. I'd be surprised if we were less than 21. You know, we, we got 17 in last year. I don't think we're going to need to double up at circuits like we, we did. So I think we're going to have, you know, 21, 22, 23 individual races. The industry's done an excellent job of being able to navigate around COVID. We've had very few incidents for quite a large industry flying around the world. We know the protocols. We we know what to look for. We're a thousand times smarter on, on how to, to, to work around this issue. So I think we'll see a gradual return of fans over the course of the, the year, you know, limited audience and a little less limited than a little less limited, you know, as right. we kind of go into the summer. But I think we're going to get a full kind of normal season in, in a more sterile working environment. And then hopefully, knock on wood, you know, 2022 will be, you know, normal, whatever that new normal is. Right. So give us a peek into McLaren's chances this coming race season. You've got a new driver, Daniel, paired with yep. Lando, uh, arguably one of, if not the most exciting driver teams uh, on the entire grid. Yeah, I think we got a great driver lineup. I think this year will look a lot like last year, which means, you know, very close between third and 
in sixth, seventh. You know, we went into the last race of the year last year in fourth, could have finished third, could have finished fifth. We have finished third, which is great. But, you know, we could be sitting here going, we finished fifth. So I think it's going to be extremely close. Um, you're going to need two good drivers, which we have a little bit of luck. We've got the new Mercedes power unit. We think that's an upgrade, but we're going to still have to learn it. So that's a little bit of a disadvantage. You know, I think we can be anywhere from uh, where we were this year uh, backwards. Uh, I think first and second place are still too far out of reach. So I think um, we've had a nice journey from ninth, sixth, fourth, third. But as I've told everyone, don't think it's going 2-1 in the next uh, two years. I think it's going to be uh, a pretty big slug uh, to to get to that next level over the next few years. Right. Well, and as fast as Formula One cars go and folks, they scream. If you ever have the chance to go to a Formula One race, do it because it's like nothing else in motor racing on the planet. So Zach, where do folks follow Formula One? You know, television programming here in the U.S., is it on ESPN? Yes, it is on ESPN. Okay. And then, of course, on the various digital platforms. For sure. And does McLaren have its own digital platform, OTT? We've got our own app and something that's called Slipstream, which is effectively a pre- and post-game show. But the actual broadcast itself is exclusive to Formula One, so we uh, we provide the highlights before and after. Got it. Cool. Well, listen, best of luck to you, Daniel and, and Lando. So... Let's go now. We've just got a few minutes left. We'll go into our four regular bits here. First of all, we all make mistakes. And as leaders, the mistakes we make can be pretty glaring at times. So this favorite mistake of yours, an homage to Sheryl Crow, my favorite female artist, she wrote a great song called My Favorite Mistake. So what's yours? The one you learned the most from? Yeah, I'm not sure I'd call it my favorite, <laughs> but it's the one I definitely learned the the most from, and that would be uh, Indianapolis 500 in 2019 with Fernando Alonso when we didn't qualify. That was horrific. That was on me to bring the McLaren brand, to bring a two-time world champion, to bring the sponsors that we had. We had no excuse. We had everything we we needed, and to not qualify, quite frankly, was massively embarrassing. And I see where we made all the mistakes, I can date them back to six months before. Definitely learned from it. But, you know, we got back on the horse and now we finished fourth in the uh, IndyCar Championship last year. So it, it knocked us down, but it didn't knock us out. Right. Well, you're down, but you're never out, especially when you've got resilience and focus and passion for what you do, which clearly resonates from you. So the second one is your favorite female singer-songwriter, artist, band, group, that's a good question. If you were going to say duo, I know exactly who I would say because that's my favorite band. I um, I like a lot of everything. I'd probably actually have to say Madonna. Nice. Yeah. Well, a storied career. That was my era. Yeah. Well, but listen, man, a storied career, still hugely talented. Do you have a favorite Madonna track that you love? I like that whole "Like a Virgin" uh, album. <laughs> Got it. I remember going to her concert. And the Beastie Boys opened up for before they were the Beastie Boys, and they got booed off the stage. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Well, she's yeah. a great call, and, and she has yeah. stood the test of time and, and will continue to. Next, humor plays a very big role in, in business and in life, actually. 
Uh, and I sort of differentiate between humor and funny. So humor, the most humorous moment you can recall where, you know, tension was diffused or you avoided a problem before it happened. And then from a practical perspective, how important is humor in the workplace, do you think? For me, I use humor uh, a lot. You know, I'm pretty lighthearted and I like to uh, poke fun. So uh, humor is a big part of uh, my routine. Unfortunately, I think you have to be a little bit careful with it these days because you can say something that you think's funny that someone else might not think is is funny. So, which I think is a bit unfortunate because I know it's like a good comedian. You laugh, but the stuff they say, you know, is not very politically correct. So I think you have to be very careful with your humor these days because you never quite know what you think is funny and you're genuinely joking uh, could be seen as offensive to someone else who maybe doesn't know you, doesn't realize you're joking. So that's a bit un- unfortunate, but I, I use it all the time. I can't really think of a, a single incident because it's actually part of my daily routine. Well, that's that's really great to hear because I, I, it's part of mine as well. And And sort of across my career, I can call out several humorous moments, but but it was really when there was a lack of humor where it was obvious that it could have helped and didn't because whoever the leader was or whatever the moment was didn't allow for it in one way or another. Unfortunate for sure. And I completely agree with you that these days care must be taken, but that doesn't mean that humor doesn't have its place or its value in the workplace. 100%. Last one, the pithy one. You and I both know that words matter. As the leader, what you say, what you don't say, what you do, what you don't do is is watched very carefully. So your favorite word and why? Probably the one I use most is mega, <laughs> which is probably my California coming out in me. I can tell you the one that I hate, and I know that's not the question, uh, <laughs> but everyone that's worked with me knows is ASAP. Uh, I think it's can lead to a lot of confusion as ASAP comes with a lot of ambiguity. Because ASAP means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And your my calendar says Monday at 3, says Tuesday at 10, Friday at 4. There is no ASAP in the calendar. So if you want to have a miscommunication on when something needs to get done, ASAP is a dangerous term. You know what? We're going to go with that one and we're going to flip it <laughs> on this one. That's that's a great description, Zach. And listen, I want to really thank you for being willing to spend some time. You're in Bahrain right now. It's it's coming up on midnight there. But listen, thanks so much for this. We super appreciate your willingness to be a part of the best boss ever. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you now. You take care and good luck in 2021. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Spotify, Google, Pandora, and many others. Please visit our website at thebestbossever.com where you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Until next week, remember, words matter. Words matter.